uh, what's been talked about. And yeah, I just encourage you to prayerfully, uh, prayerfully read through uh, what the Bible says about this topic. Now, every major world religion tries to answer four major questions. <laughs> the end. Four major questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? What is my purpose in life? And what happens to me when I die? And today we're going to see what the Bible says about death. Before we start, I'm just going to invite you to bow your heads with me for prayer, and we'll begin. Father God, I just want to uh, first thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word, to read the Bible, and to really get to know your heart in these important matters of our lives. And I just want to pray that your spirit would guide us, give us understanding, um, and, uh, and that you would be with me as I share your word as well. So we pray these things in your name. Amen. So in the Bible, there are two main opinions of what happens when someone dies. The first opinion or the first idea is that people go straight to heaven when they die or their soul kind of goes up and kind of resides in heaven and our loved ones are kind of looking down upon us um, post-death. A second understanding is that people go to the grave and wait till uh, wait there till the second coming of Christ. And today I want to tell you that both of them are correct. In the Bible, both of those examples happen. And we're going to look at a couple of those examples. First, let's look at examples of people who went straight to heaven. So the first person that we're going to look at is an individual named Enoch. And the Bible says something really interesting about Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 verse 21 to 24, it says that Enoch lived 65 years and had Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. The Bible describes this incredible connection that Enoch has with God. And as he spends day after day, month after month, year after year, God just kind of thinks to himself, Enoch, I want you to be with me. No more separation. I'm going to take you straight to heaven. And so God takes him. Enoch simply was not. He disappears. I've heard it said that the Russians have cosmonaut, the Americans have astronaut, and Enoch was God's was not. Okay. Then there's Elijah. Elijah is also an Old Testament um, character, and in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Then it appeared, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And so from the biblical account, Elijah also never sees death. He's just simply taken straight up to heaven. Then there's one more example in the Bible, and that's the example of Moses. Moses was that really well-known, influential leader that really helped Israel start out as a nation. And in Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 6, it says that Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his grave to this day, 
And later on in the Old Testament, you see the Israelites going out and looking for the body of Moses, and they cannot find Moses' body. And the question is, well, what happened to it? Where did it go? And if you look at Jude chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And so here's this instance that's being shared in the Bible where God and the enemy are kind of having this argument over Moses' body. It's kind of like, where is it going to go? And basically God says, you are not allowed to keep the body. I'm taking it. And basically what's being implied is that Moses' body gets translated straight to heaven. And this makes sense when you look at the gospel story where Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. There are two individuals that appear, Moses and Elijah, and they're talking to Jesus. And so there's this kind of a vision that's given to the disciples, and they're seeing two people, the two individuals that were translated straight to heaven. So there's no doubt about it. The Bible talks about people um, not seeing death or after death going to heaven. So there are clear examples of that. But there's a second kind of death that I'd like to talk about. Um, The Bible talks about the state of humanity in death as a teaching. In other words, there are norms that happen. These examples that we've looked at are probably more the exception. And now I'd like to talk about death as a, um, what happens to man in the state of death. So to start out, I'd like to talk about the concept of the immortal soul or the eternal soul. Is the soul conscious after death? So in the Bible, it doesn't refer to death as a uh, as a living entity. And the video did such a great job of explaining that concept. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it talk about the soul as a conscious being. But if you look throughout history, there are societies, there are peoples who believed in the immortality or the eternal soul. And um, what we're going to see is that there's this progression of thought that takes place from generation to generation. And then we're going to see where Christianity shows up in the context of history. So the first major people group or empire or culture that really embraced and recorded their, their teachings and ideas of death are the Egyptians. And basically, they taught that each individual that dies goes to this place of judgment. And in judgment, they face uh, the feather of ma'at. And basically, they believe that um, if a person was good then and, and, and they measured up to the standard of judgment, then they could have eternal life. And what they would do is there are drawings where the heart of a person is placed on a scale. And on one hand is the person's, uh, person's heart, and on the other side is the feather of ma'at. And if that heart is... Um, not heavier than the feather of Ma'at, then the person was allowed to be reincarnated. But if the person's heart was evil and unpure, and it was heavier than the feather, then there was this god uh, named Amit that looked like a crocodile, and it would gobble up the heart. And so basically there was this idea of uh, perpetual reincarnation based off of judgment. Next we have the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, or the ancient Babylonians, I should say, also believed in the, co- in the soul continuing on. Not so much in a heaven or a hell, but just this, 
there's this nether world that the soul continues on in. And it really wasn't based off of judgment. It was just the natural progression of death. The next great civilization that we see that kind of believes in the afterlife are the Greeks. Notice Tertullian references Plato's teachings on the subject. I use the opinion of Plato when he declares every soul is immortal. The Greeks really believed in this dualistic nature of man. In other words, there's the physical body and then there's the spiritual body or the spiritual soul. And the soul continues on in the afterlife. The afterlife is really important in Greek mythology. And so when you look through Greek mythology, you really see the afterlife heavily, heavily in, uh, um the idea of the afterlife heavily influences Greek mythology. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the New Testament, the New Testament is written in Greek because in the time of the Roman Empire, the common language was Greek. And so they used the Greek language. But what happens is when you use a certain language, then the ideas that are being communicated are influenced by that language. And so for those of you who speak more than one language, there are certain ideas and concepts that are communicated through specific words in your, your particular language, and it cannot be communicated in another language. In, in Korean, a lot of that has to do with, like, food tastes. Like, there are just certain tastes that you cannot describe outside of the Korean language. And I think um, we try to translate it, especially when it comes to Japanese food, by creating or inventing words like umami, right? We've got an umami flavor. Well, what's that? Ah, it's so hard to describe. And so basically the biblical teaching of death is influenced by the, the Greek language and the, and the Greeks believed in this immortality of the soul. So in the New Testament, they use words like spirit, soul, body, and they appear in the same sentence as the video mentioned. And in the Greek vocabulary, spirit can mean the power that makes decisions. It can mean our emotions, our desire. It's your character. It's your heart. There are so many different aspects of that, of what that, of what those words mean. Now, the next civilization that really conquered the Greeks were the Romans. And the Romans really adopted similar teachings to the Greeks. Oftentimes when you read Roman mythology and Greek mythology, the two get really mixed up because they're so similar. A lot of it got assimilated into that next civilization. The immortality of the soul was very prevalent in Roman thought. And if you look at Christian history, the church was born in the context of the Roman Empire. So if you search Christian theology you're not going to find a lot of ideas when it comes to this idea of the, of the immortality of the soul. The Bible talks about a resurrection. It talks about a time where people are going to come back to life. But when it comes to the state of humanity in death, the Bible just really doesn't talk a whole lot about it. And so the question is, where did we get the idea of souls going to heaven or hell? And there really isn't a clear origin. Like, I actually spent a lot of time reading different literature and just wondering, which theologian really coined this idea of death? But here's something that's interesting. What you find in church history is that the medieval church or the Catholic church popularized the teaching of indulgences, which allowed the church to control the masses. And what they did was they taught that you can shorten your time or even free yourself or free a loved one from hell if you obtain a pardon from the church. 
And so there was kind of this fear of, oh, no, after judgment, what's going to happen? Or I have loved ones, and I'm not sure if they're in heaven or in hell, but I want to make sure that they have the best life possible. Now, later on, Pope Leo X implemented the selling of indulgences to raise money to build St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And if you go visit Rome, then you'll see this magnificent building. But the way that it was funded was really controversial, where the church was selling freedom from sin. Can you imagine? Someone feels extreme guilt, and they're just thinking, how do I get rid of this guilt? And then someone says, you can buy it. Well, that's a great way to fundraise. And so what happened is they raised tons of money selling freedom, selling forgiveness of sins. And it revolved around this idea of you don't know where your loved one is. Um, You don't know where your dead loved one is right now. I can give you peace of mind. And so a lot of this idea of death is influenced in this time period. So what I want to talk about is what is a soul? Let's look at actual Bible texts. And as the video mentioned, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it uses this word nephesh. And uh, in Genesis 2, 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living nephesh. And in the Hebrew, that word can be translated, that which breathes a creature living beings it can be a person it can be translated as a seat of appetite the seat of emotions the activity of the mind and so if you were to kind of make a little bit of a formula you would say the dust from the ground plus the breath of god makes somebody a living soul there's another illustration here if you think of uh, a light bulb or electricity our bodies are kind of like the housing um And God's breath is the electricity. And when you combine the two, we become a living soul. So in Genesis chapter 46, verses 22, it says, These are the sons of Rachel, which were born to Jacob. All the souls were 14. And so souls in the Old Testament are referred to as living beings in the context of life. Notice here in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, or 18 verse 4 it says the souls who sin shall die souls in the bible are mortal so if life is dust plus the breath of god then death is creation in reverse and notice what it says here in ecclesiastes well first we're going to look in the old testament ecclesiastes chapter 12 verse 7 it says then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit, Ruach, will return to God who gave it. And that's kind of like that idea of that life-giving power. So here's an example in the New Testament. Death being creation in reverse. The body without the spirit is dead. So oftentimes in the Bible, death is referred to as sleep. And we're just going to see a bunch of different examples of this because I just it's probably a little bit overkill, but here we go. So if death is not your soul continuing on in consciousness, then death is sleep. Notice here in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 5 and 6, it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also, their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. 
never more will they have a share in anything done under the sun. And so notice here, when it comes to the consciousness, at death, there is no thought, there is no emotion. And oftentimes when you're sleeping, there's kind of this, you're just sleeping and then you wake up. In Job chapter 14, verses 14 and 21, it says, If a man dies, his sons come to honor, and he does not know it. They are brought low, and he does not perceive it. And now I'm just going to go through a few verses where the Bible actually says death is sleep. So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And so notice it uses that specific word. 1 Kings eleven twenty one, and Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his stead. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 31, and Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. So over and over and over again, death is referred to as sleep. If we go to uh, one more example, and Abijam slept with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. So notice here in the New Testament as well, when Paul actually writes about um, death, notice how he describes it. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 16 to 18, he writes, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul is not the only one who talks about death. And, well, as he, as he talks about this, it's always in the context or it's in the context of the second coming because that idea is supposed to give hope that death is not the end. Now, Jesus also refers to death as sleep. Notice what he says here in John chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. Now, in this story, Jesus is on his way to go heal his friend Lazarus because he hears that Lazarus is sick. And when he arrives there, he finds out that Lazarus has actually died. And so here's what Jesus says in reference to Lazarus. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. Now, we've kind of laid a foundation when it comes to what the Bible says about the state of um, humanity and death, but there are other verses that imply the fact that the soul continues on, that the soul is immortal. And so I want to look at a couple of those passages because I think it's worth it to actually see what's being commonly taught and then kind of reason through those passages. So the first example that I want to look at is the rich man and Lazarus, which is found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And I'll invite you to actually open up your Bibles um, to that, to that uh, story. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And for those of you who are using the White Bibles, it's page 841. 841. Yeah. 
And I've heard a lot of people use this verse to kind of talk about what happens to people when they die. And so I'm just going to skim through this story. We're going to look at, uh, start at verse 19. And for those of you who have the white Bibles, you'll notice that there are little section breaks and little titles that talk about what the content is going to be about. And notice here it says, the parable or parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And so right from the beginning, we learn that this story is a parable. It's not doctrine. It's not teaching. It's a metaphor. And for that very reason, when we interpret this story, we should consider the fact that it is a metaphor as opposed to actual reality. So we'll start verse 19. It says, Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. So Jesus kind of sets the introduction of this story by saying, there's a wealthy man, there's a poor man. And I'm going to invite you to actually read through on your own as I just narrate the story. And what Jesus does in the story is he sends the rich man to hell. And then he sends the poor man to heaven. And what you see here is that there's an interaction between the rich man, God, and the poor man. So here's that interaction. If you look at verse 23, and his soul went to the place of the dead, there in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. And I, uh, excuse me, I am in anguish in these flames. And basically Abraham says, no. Now think about this for a second. If we are saying because of this parable, when people die, they go to heaven or hell, then you've got to accept every aspect of this reality if you're going to pick that one aspect. And what I mean by that is, if our souls do continue on to hell or to heaven, then people in hell can communicate with people in heaven. Does that make sense? So imagine someone is in heaven enjoying eternity, enjoying the golden streets. It's like, ah, I finally made it. And all of a sudden, off in the distance, you hear this, ah, it's so hot down here. Oh, man, can you please send us some water? Like, that would be, can you imagine living for eternity, hearing people screaming like that? And my point is, if you accept this story as a reality, it's really disturbing. It's really, really, really disturbing. And so Jesus here uses this as an example to teach his hearers an important lesson about wealth. And, and the point is, in this period of time, people thought if you're wealthy, it means God has blessed you. If you're poor, then God has cursed you. And what Jesus does is he reverses the role and he says, no, the poor are blessed. The wealthy are the ones that are in trouble, right? And that isn't, that isn't a blanket statement. He's just trying to get his hearers to listen and change their, their idea of thinking. And what you're going to find is that in these particular stories, um, it really influenced people throughout church history as well. Because there is this idea of, man, I'm poor. Why am I poor? And there's this wrestling of our social economic status. And Jesus here is teaching a lesson. That's not what determines your value, right? There's a really, really important lesson here. And so I just want to highlight that this story is a parable. 
and therefore to build a doctrine off of this particular story, uh, you find a lot of challenges. Here's the next example. The example is the thief on the cross. And this is a really famous, famous um, passage that's used to communicate what happens to people when they die. So here's the reason why. In Luke chapter 23, verse 43, it says, Jesus said to him, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so here we have a verse where Jesus, when he's talking to the thief on the cross, he says, hey, we're dying, right? But to give you encouragement, I want you to know today you're going to be with me in paradise. In other words, I am saving you. You're coming with me to heaven. And so on one hand, it's a very encouraging verse. On, an, on the other hand, it's kind of a confusing verse. Now, what I want to point out is in some Bibles, punctuation is used like a comma. And because of the placement of that comma, it sounds like Jesus is saying, today, you're going to come with me to heaven. But as you keep reading through the gospel story, you're going to find a complication in understanding this verse in that particular manner. So in John chapter 20, verses 15 to 17, this is after Jesus has resurrected. And Mary is looking for Jesus everywhere. And she comes to realize this is Jesus. He's alive. And she falls at his feet and she kind of grabs him because she's so excited. And notice Jesus says to Mary, touch me not for I have not yet ascended to my father. And this is the point where there's a contradiction. If Jesus says to the thief, Today, you're coming with me to heaven. But then two days later, when Mary touches him, Jesus says, I have not yet ascended. Why would Jesus then say to the thief, today, we're going? Because that's a very specific time frame. And yet we read from the story, Jesus has not yet ascended. And so there's that complication. So how do we then explain that? And my point is, in the Greek, there's no punctuation. Commas are not used. Uh, there's no exclamation marks. There's no question marks. Everything is determined by context. And so when the Greeks wrote this, no punctuation. So forgive this illustration. It says, a woman without her man is nothing. A woman without her man is nothing. But if you add punctuation, it's going to change the meaning of this verse or this statement. Maybe. Okay. A woman without her, man is nothing. And so you notice commas make a difference, right? Punctuation matters. So let's look at the verse again. Here's the way that we usually interpret this passage. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You change the location of that punctuation. I say to you today you will be with me in paradise. And so the punctuation makes a difference. So the Bible actually has a fair bit to say when it comes to contacting the dead or interacting with the supernatural. And, you know, there in, in the days of Israel, there were a lot of different uh, people who practiced um, uh, necromancy or... Um, uh, witchcraft or uh, wizardry or whatever it may have you. And in the Bible, it was a really big deal because what God is doing is he is acknowledging that there is supernatural power outside of himself. 
there is supernatural power outside of himself. And his people naturally gravitated towards that which was supernatural. So here's a verse in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 to 12. Um, The instruction that's given is, There shall not be found among you anyone who practices witchcraft, or a medium, or a spiritualist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. So God is basically distancing himself and saying, That is not consistent with who I am. If you look in the New Testament, it says here in Matthew 24, and we're going to be going over this chapter in depth in the next session, but it says here, then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And so what's mentioned here is that Jesus is saying, Uh, Even Jesus in the New Testament is saying, there is supernatural power outside of myself. And so the challenge is that that supernatural power is used as a means of deception. And so God here is trying to prioritize. He's trying to get his people to prioritize truth. He's trying to get people to to prioritize truth as opposed to being drawn away by the supernatural. And if you look around in the world, there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'm a psychic. I I can communicate with the dead. And there are different seances and things like that that take place. This is not like a biblical reality that's far from fiction. Like this is, it's actually a real thing that happens even today. And people are really drawn to it. Because can you imagine one of the most painful things that we can experience is being separated from a loved one. And so the question is, man, I just want to see that person again. Like, but the question is, what would, what would happen once you met that person? What would you do if you could talk to a dead person? Right? What questions would you ask? How would you interact in that situation? And here, what God is doing is he's, he's giving a warning and saying, hey, listen, I'm giving you this teaching about what happens to people when they die so that you know how to handle yourself if that situation were to arise. So in the New Testament, John, or excuse me, John writes about um, an instance that Jesus has, particularly around this idea of interacting with the supernatural. John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it says, Now when he, this is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> Actually, let's go there. This is important. John, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in your Bibles, chapter 2. And we're going to read verse 24. Page 853. Page 853. Notice what it says in verse 24. It says, But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature. Now this is a really interesting idea here. Jesus performs miracles, and people begin to believe in him because of the supernatural. Man, you can pull food out of nowhere. You can, you can heal the sick. You can restore the sight to the blind. We believe that you are supernatural. We believe you're divine. And so they come to him, and they want to embrace Jesus, and he distances himself from them and says, Oh, actually, I don't want you to commit yourself to me. I don't want to commit myself to you. And the text says he does this because he knows what's in man. And what I want to highlight here is that oftentimes in religion and in spirituality, it's easy to get drawn by the supernatural. And here, God 
doesn't confirm, excuse me, God doesn't convince people with the supernatural. He doesn't convince people with the supernatural. Oftentimes when Jesus performs miracles, it confirms faith. In other words, people already believe in who he is. They already believe in his identity. And then the miracle comes and it's like, yeah, that was God. But there are, there are powers where there is this cosmic battle that's being fought. And we mentioned that in session two. So if you're interested in that, you can go and listen to that talk on the YouTube channel. But there's this conflict that's being fought. And what Jesus is saying is that people are going to be convinced by the supernatural. But don't be convinced by signs, wonders, and that which you cannot explain. As opposed to being drawn by that which you can understand and can explain, the love of God. And so God here gives this advice to his people, don't be deceived. Now, what's nice to know is that even though we cannot communicate with the dead, or even though there's a warning to communicate with the dead, here in the Bible, God promises life after death. And over and over in scripture, it reinforces this idea that Jesus has power over the grave because he is resurrected. Notice what it says here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 and 54. It says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. For this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. There's this incredible promise that's given to give us hope. I think this, this question of what happens post-death, is my life only limited to this 70, 80, 90, 100 years? Um, is there a hope of anything beyond the grave? And the Bible reinforces over and over and over, because of Jesus, there is hope beyond the grave. You know, when I was 15, my mother passed away, and I remember wondering uh, many, many times, am I going to see her again? Am I going to see her again? And it's just so nice to know that in the Bible, God knows what's in our heart's desire. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral, but people are usually crying at a funeral. And I don't know if you've ever wondered, why do we cry at funerals? Why do we cry when people die? And that may seem like a very simple, obvious answer, or there might be a simple, obvious answer to that question. But I, I do want to highlight, there's something in our hearts that communicates, this is not right. When people die, it's just not right. It's as if it isn't the norm. It shouldn't happen. But the reality is, there's only one thing guaranteed in life, and that's death. Like, as soon as you're born, you are guaranteed to die. But when it happens, we're so frustrated, we're so hurt, and we, under, we, we always wonder, why did this happen? Especially when death comes prematurely. And the point is, I think God does that on purpose. He instills in our hearts that desire for something more. And so there's this promise that's given. Yes, there is a temporary death, but there's also a promise of eternal life. So that when it happens, in our hearts we know, yeah, this is right. This is very, very right. I hope that the word of God can really bring you encouragement that, well, first of all, that your encounters with God can give you encouragement so that this final encouragement becomes a reality for you. May God bless you and guide you as you study and read his word. Would you join me in prayer as we finish this first session? 
Father God, as we've kind of discussed this idea of death and um, what we go through when we die, Father, I just want to pray that you would um, really encourage us with the fact that death is only a temporary thing. And also that as we really work through this idea and the implications of this idea, that um, you would give us clarity and understanding um, as this would be new um, for many people. I pray these things in your name. Amen.